start our new sermon series, His Name, where we're going to be looking, um, camping out in Exodus uh, chapter 34. And beginning of the year, we looked at the book of Leviticus. We went through one whole book, then we went into 1 Corinthians 15, looked at one whole chapter. Now we're going to spend this time across the summer looking at one particular verse. And we're going to zoom right in to this verse in Exodus and spend time there. And this verse in Exodus, it tells us, or scholars tell us, people who are smarter than me tell us, it is quoted in the Bible, by the Bible, the mo- more than any other verse. Possibly over a hundred times this verse is then re-quoted or alluded to throughout scripture. So it's obviously a very important verse and we're going to spend some time in that. And it's all about the name of God, which is why uh, we've called this series His Name. Now, I don't know if you've ever had um, the responsibility for naming something or someone. I am a parent and a father of two and so I've been through that process twice. And when uh, we first, Mel and I first kind of talked about having kids and then Mel and I got pregnant, the whole kind of thing about what do you name this, this child we're expecting. And because I am one of three boys, I had an expectation that this would be the first of three boys, because that's kind of the only frame of reference I had, and uh, boys are just awesome, and so that's what I thought it is. And I was very confident in my naming conventions for my coming sons, and so my first son was gonna be called Steel, my second son, Striker, and then my third, Batman, and that was, and I said to Mel, this is, this is, this is what's going to happen. This is going to be our family. We're going to have Steel Striker and Little Batman. Um, and it's going to be awesome. And I was convinced this was the thing. And to the point where Mel didn't find it funny anymore. <laughs> and I just thought, no, this is really it. Until the point there's that one day when I was saying, she said, we've got to come up for a name for this child. And I said, I've told you, it's Steel. And if it's a girl, it's Steel. That's the name of the child. And, <laughs> and Mel started to cry, which I realized at that point, maybe I need to backtrack and not be so entrenched on what I thought the name was. And so then we had another conversation, what actually can we call this child? And our first son was called Levi, and our second son is called Asher, um, and I'm still in grieving for not having Steel or Striker. But anyway, but we've got Levi, and why did we choose those names? Well, the, the reason we chose those names is because we didn't just want to name, uh, put a name on a birth certificate and just a name going, just be a bunch of letters that the child would then carry through their life. We wanted to have something deeper. We wanted to have a meaning to it. And so when we looked at what we were going to name it, it wasn't just a case of what the name was. It's what does it mean? What does it carry with him? What, what does it say about this child? And Levi, our eldest son, we were, as we prayed and we thought about that, we realized that we loved um, the fact that the Levites in the Old Testament were those who were set apart for God. They were that set apart. They didn't get the inheritance. And when we looked at the book of Joshua a few years ago, all the tribes got their inheritance. The Levites didn't. Why they didn't get land? Because what the Lord said, I am your inheritance. They got the Lord. And I thought, that is a fantastic thing to kind of call a child and say, actually, you're going to get the Lord. And then we looked in our New Testament and there's a story of Levi there. And Levi was a tax collector, thoroughly crooked individual, and Jesus said to him simply, come, follow me. And what did Levi do? It just says, got up, left it all, followed Jesus. And it's like, that is a good name to give a child, that he would be one who would be set apart for the Lord, and he'd be one who would leave everything to follow Jesus. And so we called our first son Levi. The second one we called Asher. Asher means abundant happiness or abundant blessing. 
and we thought he was a gift and a blessing to us. So that's why we called him. So the names we gave our kids carried something with them. And what we're looking at today is the name of the Lord. And when we think about the name of the Lord, you can think of lots of different names. But it's, we'll see in this passage, it's not just simply a word or a name. It carries something with it. So when we look at his name, there is so much more to it, which is why we're going to camp out in this verse for the next six weeks. So, if you've got Genesis, uh, sorry, Exodus 34, let me give you a quick context of this passage. Exodus, second book in the Bible. So, before it, we've got the first 33 books of Exodus and the book of Genesis. So, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Adam and Eve, they go into the garden. Everything's good. Everything's good. Um, but then man rebels against God. They sin. They are removed from the garden and they face the consequences of their action, which is separation from God and death. But then what we feel is we carry through the book um, of Genesis, we find God comes to a man named Abraham. Thanks, Phil. Um, comes to, and he says to Abraham, he makes a promise to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And then he, we see Abraham has a son, and then he has another son, who then has 12 sons. And by the time we get to the book of uh, Genesis, we find all the family of the line of Abraham are down in Egypt and kind of growing and multiplying. Then we flip over the page into the book of Exodus. 400 years have suddenly passed. Pum. All right. And the family of Abraham has grown and multiplied and is now a mighty nation. But the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, has enslaved them. He sees them as powerful and mighty. He fears them. And he says, I'm going to enslave them and I'm going to use them and make them work for me. And God then raises up a new leader, a man named Moses, who will to deliver um, his people. And to condense the story, we have the story of the plagues, let my people go. And it's so exciting, they make movies about this kind of thing. And then they go and there's a part of the Red Sea. And they come out of the wilderness and they come to the mountain of God where God's presence is. And so that's the first sort of 18 chapters of Exodus. Condensed. So that's what we've got up to. And then the back end of Exodus, where we find this verse, we find that the Lord comes on the mountain and he speaks to Israel and he makes a covenant with them. And a covenant is merely a solemn agreement between two parties, so God and Israel. And he says to them, I will be your God and I will bless you and I will kind of look after you. And the response of the people is they are then to just obey the laws of God. That's their side of it. God says, I bless you, I protect you. And the people of God are then to obey the commands of God. And then you have the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, which we did a, a, a few um, years back. And then the nations of the law followed. And then Moses ascends the mountain of the Lord. He's up there 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's up there, God gives him the plans for the tabernacle, which we looked at in Leviticus just at the beginning of the year. So there was a tabernacle, which was to be the place where the presence of God would dwell amongst his people. It was just basically a big, really big, fancy tent. And God's presence would be there, and his presence would be amongst his people. And what we find at this point in the story is there's been a restoration of what happened in Eden. In Eden, you had God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's presence in the garden, and it was amazing. And the tabernacle will be a restoration of that because on the tabernacle furniture and curtains there will be Im images of the garden and trees. And so God's people will be coming back and God's will be in their presence. And it was brilliant. And what was began in Eden has now been gone back to an exodus. And it's like, yes, this is brilliant. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, it's God's people. You know what's coming, don't you? 
Meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, while Moses is up the mountain getting the plans, what are the people of God doing? Well, one, they're a bit worried about Moses. He's gone, he's died, we're not sure what's going to happen. So some bright spark comes up with an idea and says, let's make an idol of our own. And they make a golden calf. And if you're familiar with that story, there's a golden calf, and Aaron, um, Aaron who's Moses' brother, gets involved, and it's just... It goes badly. And so Moses up the mountain getting the, the blueprint for the new Eden where God will be with his people. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, they're breaking the first commandment, you'll have no other God but me, and they're breaking the second commandment, don't make an idol that God has literally just given to them. And they're worshipping this golden cast. And he says to Moses, right, that's it. That's it, I'm not having this anymore. I've just made this covenant with you, I've just saved you, and you're messing it up already. Moses goes down the mountain, Smash up the golden calf. There's people who are um, judged and executed as idolaters, and it's just like, oh. Moses then goes back up the mountain, speaks to God, and God says, guess what? You can have the promised land, which I promised to Abraham, but I'm not coming with you. You can have it because I'm a God, I keep my promise, but my presence won't go with you because of your sin. To which Moses intercedes. He stands and said, God, don't do that. That's what makes us different that's what marks us as your people to be to all the other people. What are the people in Egypt going to think when they look on and realize that you haven't gone with us? They're going to say things about you. It's just, it's not going to work. And Moses stands before God and says, God, you can't do that. Remember who you are. And God relents and says, I will come with you because of you, Moses, what he's done, who's man who stood in the gap. And then Moses asks God to reveal his glory to him. That's what he says. God, reveal your glory to him. And Moses ascends the mountain again, which brings us to the beginning of Exodus chapter 34. And so Moses has gone back up the mountain. God said, I will reveal my glory to you. And this is the moment. After all that's happened, God said, I will come with you. I will be my people. And we get to Exodus 34, and we're going to start at verse 5, and it's on the screen. And what we're going to do, because it's not a short passage, we're going to read it out together. And so if we all read what's on the screen, hopefully we'll all do it, we'll all get it correctly. If I got you to read from your Bible, so many different translations, it would sound terrible. So, so we do this. If I do a one, two, three, and then you can show me how good you are at your... Don't let me down. Dave's watching. Okay? Ready? One, two, three. guys are awesome. Thank you very much for that. All right, big idea of what we're going to look at today. God has revealed his sensual nature to his people and it is perfectly shown to us in Jesus. So what we're going to do here is we're going to spend some time looking at this, a God revealing himself to Moses and through scripture to us and to all his people. And a lot of people have views of God and what he's like and they base their opinion on that. But actually the best place to go is what God says about himself and we need to base our views on that. 
And so that's what we're going to look at here, and we're going to see this is what God says about himself, and this is the person he is. So, number one, we're going to look at his name. Verse 5, the Lord ascended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. A couple of bits about this. The first one is that God is not his name. God is not his name. Let me explain what I mean. It says, the Lord appeared in his cloud, his glorious presence on the mountain with Moses, and he reveals to Moses who he is. Now, we often refer to, we use the word God as a general term, and when we talk about it, we know who he is. But in the Bible, that's not how it works. God is actually not his name. God in the Bible just refers to a kind of an order of being, which is an unseen spiritual power. Call, us calling him God would be like my son calling me parent, which would just be odd. If Levi came in one day and said, parent, could I please have a drink? I'd be like, no, what? What is that? What he would call me is daddy, because that shows that our kind of relationship we have and the depth of intimacy we have. And so when we think about God as just God, we're actually not using it correctly. We're not identifying him in a biblical term, because the Bible uses the word God to describe lots of different things. And it does have God capital G and God small g to kind of differentiate it. But what he's talking about is the same order of beings. Let me give you some verses. Exodus 12, same book, it says this. For I will pass through the lands of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. So there's that word god. So Egypt had gods. Small g, but they still had gods. Later, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, in Exodus 18, says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, because in this affair he dealt arrogantly with the people. So he had seen that the God of Israel was greater than the gods of Egypt. The first two commands of the Ten Commandments talk about other gods. You can't worship other gods. Don't make an idol and worship that. You can't do that. Paul later in the New Testament says this, in their case, the God of this world, he's referring to Satan, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so what, when we talk about the word God or God, is referring to just spiritual powers, unseen spiritual powers, which the Bible has plenty to say about, which just exist. And we see them, the gods of Egypt, the gods of the Philistines, the gods of the Sidonians. You kind of trouble it through there, and then Paul talks about the God of this world referring to Satan. And these gods are real, and they have real power. And because we find when Moses went to Pharaoh's court and started doing signs, what do we find that the court magicians could do? They could mimic them, which shows they had some spiritual power. They even mimicked when it got to the plagues, but then they ran out after, I think, plague two or three. They could, they could copy, they could do something, but then actually the God of Israel proved himself to be greater. And so what we have is progressive revelation in the Bible of God revealing himself as separating himself from the other God's small g that we find written about in our Bible and showing him to be the greater one than them of a different order. And so we have this progressive revelation. In Genesis, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. So he is identified with a family line which then goes down into Egypt and multiplies to this huge nation we find in Exodus. But in the book of Exodus, the revelation of who God is grows and grows. It begins in Exodus 3 with the famous incident where Moses is out in the desert with his sheep and what does he see? A bush that's on fire but it's not being consumed. Something's going on there. 
And he goes to investigate, and we find that the Lord speaks to him out of the bush, and Moses starts having this, take your shoes off, Moses, we're on holy ground, and there's this back and forth, and he says, you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, and Moses just says, gives him excuse after excuse after excuse, and in the end he says, well, I don't know who's sending me, who are you? Because he knows about the gods of Egypt, because he was raised in Egypt. He's seen and been around these dark spiritual powers. And God reveals to himself in verses 14, he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's the revelation of who God is. This God is constant. He is stable. He is eternal. He does not change. He just simply is and always has been. And this separates him out from the other gods or so-called gods that we find in the Bible. And from this, we get the transliteration of God's name, and we say um, Yahweh, which is why in your Bible, in that section we read, that we found the word Lord capitalised. You ever wondered why that's in your Bible? Sometimes Lord is spelled L-O-R-D just as we would write it, and sometimes it's spelled L-O-R-D with capitals. And in that passage we read, they were all capitalized. The reason for that is because this is the personal name of this God. I am who I am. And we get from this the Tetragrammaton, which is for Latin for four letters, where we get the letters um, of the Hebrew word um, for this God, which is YH. Y, uh, WH. And the reason it's like that is because there's no vowels in Hebrew. It all gets very technical. I read books about it. Kind of understand most of it. And so this is what we get. And so when God reveals himself, he is, I am this God. I am the God Yahweh. I am the one who is, always has been, always will be. I will not change. It sets me apart from all the other small g gods that you find yourself in the unseen spirit world. I am the greater one. I am the bigger one. I am the one over all things. I have supreme authority and control. And so when God reveals himself to Moses. He comes as that, the Lord, capitals. I am Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am the one who just is. I am who I am. I am self-existent. I don't rely on anything. No one supports me or makes me happen. I am the cause of everything. I am that God. So that is his name. And then it comes to his character, which comes straight after it. And in the Bible, when someone has a name, it's not simply just a name they be given. There's so much more meaning to it. The name is almost like a, a personal biography of who they are. And the Lord expands to Moses more of his character. And he has to do this because God has to reveal himself because man hasn't got what it takes to know God. God has to reveal himself to man. That's the way it works, because he is the one who is unseen, he is the one who is greater, he is the one who has always been, and we are finite and mortal and dull. And so God has to reveal himself to us. And so in showing his glory to Moses on the mountain, he reveals who he is. And if we go to verse 6, it says, The Lord, capitals, passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Why did he say it twice? Because that's for emphasis. They didn't have um, bold, underlined italics back when they wrote the scrolls in Hebrew. So how did they make a point? Well, they just repeated it. That's why Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. It's the emphasis of it. And that's why God is holy, holy, holy. Because it's emphasizing something. So we have the Lord, the Lord. This is the God who is different to all the others. All those unseen, small g God spiritual powers. He says, I am this one. And he lists five things about him and what we're going to do over the next five weeks is go through each one in depth that's going to be the, the meat of the series 
looking at each one in turn. But I'm just going to quickly sort of fly through them just so you've got an idea of where I'm going. What's the first one he says? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. It comes first, so it's most significant. When things are put in order in the Bible, who was the leader of the apostles? Peter, why? Because he always was named first. His name always came first in the list. It always started Peter. He was the one, he was uh, the leader of the twelve. Merciful comes first. Sometimes it's translated compassionate, but in my translation when I read it, it's merciful. And this is, comes from the word meaning womb, mother's womb. And the image here, the connection here is, the, is behind it is of the way that a parent would care for a child. If you've ever held a newborn baby, you get the gist. They're these tiny little scrunched up things that are so small and so kind of like there, but so beautiful, so delicate, and unless you're dead inside, when you hold them, you must be overcome with some kind of emotion. Like, oh my goodness, it's a baby. And you find yourself saying the dumbest things. It's a baby. Like, what else do you think it was? It's a baby. And you love them. And it doesn't even have to be yours. It's a baby. And that's the same the image behind is God's loving, tender care for his people, his children. And it's a very emotional word. It's a very strong word. And then we read throughout the Bible that God's care for his people is for like a parent for a child. It says in Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion or the son of her womb? Implication, of course, there is no. And that is God's heart towards his people. He is merciful. He is compassionate. And we see that worked out in the classic story in 1 Kings 3, where we learn of the wisdom of Solomon. If you know the story, there's the two women who are brought before Solomon's court arguing over a newborn baby. They both say, it's mine. And what does Solomon do? Inspired by the wisdom, he said, give me the sword off one of his soldiers. I'll cut the baby in half and you can have half each. To which one woman says, fine, do it. To which the other one, it says she was overcome with compassion, he, he says, let the other woman have the child because my love for the kid, what she's saying is my love for that child is so great, I'd rather that the baby was whole but someone else had him and Solomon immediately goes, that's the mum because she loves the child like that, that she's willing to give the child up rather than see something horrific happen like him being carved in two. And they praise God for Solomon's wisdom but that's that love that God has for his children. The second one, it says he's gracious. This describes God's generous favour towards his people, the undeserved favour of God that is not dependent on the recipient, on anything they've done, but only as on God as the giver. And it's out of the kindness and the goodness of God that he gives grace to, the, to, the, to his people. And this occurs in the face of human sin. Because what's just happened in the story? Israel, who he's just saved, a million plus of them, dragged them out of Egypt, performed signs and wonders, parted the sea, they've just got there, they've agreed a covenant, they've seen his presence, they've got his law, and the first thing they're doing is worshipping a cow. It's a golden cow, but it's still a cow. But he is still gracious towards them. He still loves them. And this is what you see throughout Scripture. 
throughout the Old Testament. The first person who found grace in the eyes of the Lord is Noah, it says. He said he found favour in the eyes of the Lord. God showed grace towards him. The next one, it says, uh, God is slow to anger. This can often be translated in old Bibles as long-suffering. And it literally means, this is true, long of nose or long of nostrils, which is a Hebrew idiom, which we'll come to when we get to that one. So get to, get to long of nostrils in a few weeks' time. But the point of it is that it takes an awful lot for God to get angry. An awful lot. And sometimes the God of the Old Testament gets a bit of a bad rap, like he's somehow different to the God of the New Testament, which he's not in any way, shape or form, because he's merciful and gracious, but actually he is long-suffering. As mercy and grace is close to him, anger is far away, because he is slow to anger. The point is that the Lord is patient with his people time and time and time again. And he gives them chance after chance after chance. The next one, number four, he says he is, is steadfast love. This is loyal, unfailing, dependable, unmoving love. That steadfast is kind of an old word, but it sums up all those ideas. It describes um, a kind of a relational um, a relationship between two parties. And it can be between two people, or it can be between with God and man, and over three quarters of the references in the Bible are between God and man. So God is the one of steadfast love towards his people. And based on that uh, relationship, he shows loyalty, he seeks to persevere, he seeks to protect, he seeks to cause flourishing in what they've done. It doesn't refer to a particular type of action, but more a posture God has towards his people. He is a God of steadfast love and he loves his people, and he is for them. And this is shown um, uh, through the life of David and his friend Jonathan. David, the King David, killed Goliath. Um, he had a friend called Jonathan, uh, who was a great buddy of his, and the problem with Jonathan was Jonathan's dad was the king, Saul, and he did not like David like at all, to the point he tried to kill him through jealousy and security. But David and Jonathan were incredible friends, and David had a steadfast love, the Bible says, towards his friend Jonathan even in the face of the fact that your daddy wants to kill me, I still love you. But then that doesn't, not just towards Jonathan, it's towards Jonathan's line, because Jonathan later killed at the end of 1 Samuel, um, and then we, David then finds out in 2 Samuel that actually Jonathan had a son. He says, because I love Jonathan, I'm going to love his son the same way. And so God, uh, David's steadfast love is then demonstrated towards Jonathan's son as well, that immovable love that is demonstrated there. And God is so much more greater uh, than man. So we've got steadfast love, of the Lord, and then we have last one there, faithfulness. Uh, this is another Hebrew word, and it's often translated truth, or trust, or faith, and the idea behind it is that God is totally trustworthy. He is totally worthy of being, um, trust, uh, being trusted. It has the idea of stability, of st um, reliability, constancy, and security. And so whatever God does, um, he is constant with his character. It lines up with who he is. He is reliable, stable, constant, and secure. That's the kind of God he is. And so if you reflect that back through the previous characteristics, God is steadfastly merciful. He can be trusted in his mercy. He can be trusted in his grace. He can be trusted in his patience and his love towards you. He is completely consistent in his character. And so that's... The character revealed in his name. And then the final one, verse 7. Who was like thinking, wait till he gets to verse 7? 
and see what happens there. I'd love it if it just ended at verse 6. But then we've got verse 7 we've got to deal with. It says this, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. It's all right. But will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children, and the children's children, the grandkids too, to the third and fourth generation. So we've got a God who is merciful, womb, loving parent, saying like, I'm going to kill the kids and the grandkids and the ones that come after that. So what does this mean? Well, when we get hard bits in the Bible, what we don't do <laughs> is ignore them. We have to look at them. We have to take them in context with everything that's going around them. So what does it say? Let's go through the verse. It says, keeping. So that means watching or guarding. So what's God watching or guarding? Well, it's steadfast love, which we've covered in the previous section. It says, but it's to thousands. Now, what's thousands about? Well, the idea behind thousands, if you look at the end of the verse, what, does it, what number does it use there? It uses three and four. And the way that the Hebrews are written in the poetry is that those two are linked, they're the two numbers of the verse. So on one hand you have thousands, on the other hand you have three and four. So what's the point? Well, the difference between thousands and three and four is vast. If I said to you, do you want thousands of pounds or the three or four quid I've got in my pocket, what are you going to go for? And don't anyone be holy. What would you go for? Thousands, that's right, because thousands is so much more. And the idea is that there is an infinite difference between the two. And so what we have is the steadfast love of God for thousands. It's effectively limitless. The love of God for his people is limitless. And it says, what does he do? It says he forgives. And it says he forgives three things, iniquity, transgression, and sin, which are three words that cover our opposition and rebellion to the God. The first one, iniquity, that's a general term for all kinds of bad behaviour. So he forgives all kinds of bad behaviour. The second one, transgression, could also be translated rebellion, which is anyone who violates God's laws and God's commands. So there's any bad behaviour, and there's also the specifically, are you going to break God's commands? And then the last one, sin just means missing the mark, falling short of God's standard. So God forgives all those things. And he doesn't just forgive. What does it say? He is for giving, which is a posture of his heart. It's not just a one-off act, I forgive you. The Lord is forgiving in his posture towards his people. His heart is to forgive. You don't ever have to twist the Lord's arm to forgive you. His, his way, when he comes to you, he is forgiving. That is what he's like. That's what it says. Comes from his essence. But then we have a but. We always have buts in the Bible. When there's a but, you've got to stop and look. It says, but he will no means clear the guilty. He will no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers um, on the children, the children, the children. Now, what this does not mean, what this does not mean um, is that, that if you sin, your kids are going to get it because that is explicitly um, denied in other parts of Scripture, Deuteronomy and Jeremiah. But he says, you don't, you don't do that. That's not what it's about. What it does mean is that if you are guilty, you will not be let off the hook. So actually, guilt, God will deal with it, because whether it's being loving and forgiving, he is also just. And intuitive, we know that's right, because whenever we read the paper or the news and you see something horrific happen, something in us says, the guilty must be punished. We all know that's a good and right thing. The guilty must be punished. And some in this world, some would deny our sinfulness. Oh, no one's, no one's bad. Some people just don't even care. But the fact is, God does. God cares about justice, 
And he's not vindictive and after payback, but he will punish the guilty. So what does this particular thing mean? Well, there are layers of meaning here, nuance in what he's saying. And what he's saying, I think, is, is three, three, three layers that we can look at. The first one is that the parent's sin has consequences for the child's future. All the parents in the room suddenly get terrified because <laughs> we all know we mess up. And if you have children... What we do with them, do to them, say to them, or not do what we should have done to them has consequences for their future. Sin goes beyond us. Sin is not purely a personal thing, as some would have you believe. Oh, it's purely personal. It's your thing. Rubbish. It affects those around us. It carries on around us. The second thing is sin can run in the family. If kids see their parents acting in a certain way. Kids are sponges, then they're parrots, aren't they? And they start mimicking you, which means they'll mimic all your wonderful qualities, of which there are so many. But they'll also mimic your poor qualities. I had the moment in the car the other week where I was driving along, and Lever said, oh, man, what was that bloke doing? And I was like, what? And he said, Daddy, he was, he was terrible driving. And I thought, thought, crumbs, that's what... He's heard his mother say um, <laughs> so many times that he's now picked it up. Mel's not here, it's fine. Um, but it, it carries on. It carries on. They learn from us. And the third thing is the Lord will punish the sin in each generation. Just because your parents did it doesn't mean you get a pass. And we see this outworked in, in areas where sin can carry on down through families. In some really serious areas. And actually, God will hold us accountable for our sin regardless of what our parents did. And so that's, what's, that's what he, he's pointing to here. But the, when we come to the end of it, you have to remember the difference between thousands and three and four. Yes, God will punish sin. Yeah, he will. But his posture is towards forgiveness and it is to thousands and it is limitless for those who want it, for those who want to respond to it. For those who don't, then there's judgment. And the bottom line, the way I I think about it is the scales of God are tipped one way. If you had mercy on one side and you had judgment on the other, they are tipped towards mercy. And what we find in the New Testament in the book of James? Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so actually those who cry out to God for mercy, who come to God for mercy, will receive mercy. And that's, ironically, that's the first attribute that we find on this list. God will give mercy. And so we're to take sin very seriously, but we know that God is gracious and he is forgiving in his posture towards his people. So somewhat what we've looked at so far, the Lord has revealed his name to Moses, his essential character and nation, and we find out that he is a merciful, loving parent. He shows undeserved favour to his people. He is patient In dealing with our continued failures, he is lovingly loyal to the covenant he has made and he is totally trustworthy in all he does. And his posture towards us is one of forgiveness for all that we've done. And so we're just going to kind of finish up now. And because we've looked at our Old Testament, we always end up in the same place, don't we? Who haven't we talked about yet? Jesus. Good. Well done. Is it, on, because on the, is it on the screen behind you? You just knew it. You didn't, you didn't know that. You knew it. You read it. Okay, fine. Okay, is that right? Okay, fine. 
Jesus. We always come back to Jesus. Let me read a verse from John's Gospel. John 1.14. It said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in some older translations. A word isn't dwelt. It says he tabernacled among us. See where we're going with this? The tabernacle where the presence of God came and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. What was on the mountain? Glory of God. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. That's what we find out in the Greek kind of translation of some of those words. There's an illusion right there that when it's talking about Jesus, he is the, he is the, um, the full revelation of what we find there in Exodus. He sums up all those things perfectly. He is the one who fully shows God's mercy and compassion his patience um, and his loving kindness and faithfulness. He is the one. And it says that John, uh, sorry, Jesus prays later in John, John 17, verse 6 says, I have manifested what, Jesus says in his prayer, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Just like God manifested his name to Moses on the mountain, Jesus says, I have shown your name to the people you gave me, which would have been his disciples, his followers. Later in the same, uh, same chapter, he says, verse 26, I have made them, um, I have no, uh, sorry, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, which is what we're doing now. God's name is being made known through Christ to us. He is the full and final revelation of God. And so all the stuff we read about in Exodus that Moses had on the mountain, that this is what the Lord is like, Ultimately, we see it fulfilled completely and totally in the coming of Jesus Christ, which is why we look to him, which is why we worship him, which is why we pray and sing to him. So let's finish, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time worshipping to the end. What I want to do is give you some homework. Ooh, it was so worth coming to the other venue, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> a couple of things I want you to do out of this. First one is I want you to learn those verses. If you like, just start with verse 6. The Lord, the Lord. Learn those verses. Learn those verses. If you're a show-off, because you know, you've got to differentiate the homework for the class, depending on where they are. If you're one of those, you know, you know those types, they'll do 5, 6, and 7. But if you're at the other end, you're like, well, I'll give it a bit of effort. I'll go for verse 6, and I'll just try and remember that. Do it this week. Practice this week, memorise the verse, because we're going to be camped out here across the summer, so there's not going to be any extra, I can't make you learn any more, because we're just going to do this one. So make it a point this week to practice and memorise and commit it to yourself, even if you just get the five attributes and get them in order, that would be great, but practice it, learn that verse, get it inside you, think about it, pray and meditate. Once you've learnt it, tell somebody that you've done it. Pass it on. Pass it on. Just let someone know, I've, I've learned this. So tell the people in your life group. When you gather for life group, it's church of prayer this week, so it'll be the week after. But when you do that, tell people, I've learned the verse, and then show off by telling them. Saying, look what I've done. Do that. Put it on WhatsApp. Tell people, I've been learning, I've been practicing, I've, I've done it, I've, 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 I've learned this, and it's, it's a great encouragement to learn scripture. Go on the socials. The social, that's social media for those who aren't cool. Um, 
<laughs> Apparently, I get, told, I get told this stuff. And so I do. So on the social media, put it on there. Don't put a picture of your breakfast. We love you, but don't. We don't care. Don't do that. Or rant about something Boris has done. You know, we know what he's like. You know. Tell people what you've learned. Tell people what I've learned. This is what God is. This is who he is. Merciful and compassionate. Do that. Get it in conversation. Tell someone. When you get stuck in an Uber with the Uber driver, or you get on the bus or whatever, you go to the college, how the weekend go? Well, let me tell you about the Lord. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Pass it on what you have learnt. Do that this week. Oh, I've also got some books. There's another more homework. Who wants a book about this? This is a fantastic book that I have read about this. Who wants a bit more reading? I've got four copies here. Put... I was going to kind of do hands up, but I've got two more here. Go on, David. And so if anyone else wants a copy, come and come and. Oh, well. I was. Gonna... I had a whole thing about the author, and you know. Oh well. Fine. That's the end of it. Do you want to stand up? We're going to pray. Do you want the band to come back? I'd love to pray for you uh, this week for how you do. Seriously, stand up. <laughs> Jack's just like lounging there. She was that kid, he just looked at me like, I dare you, go on, I dare you. I just, I'm not moving. All right. Okay, <laughs> totally lost it. Right, we're going to pray and then hand over to Dan and um, he's gonna, we're going to sing some stuff. Yeah, songs. Yeah, we're going to sing some songs. All right, let's, we're in a new place. It's all thrown me. Do you want to close your eyes and open your hands and we're just going to sing and we're going to pray? Lord God, we want to thank you that you revealed yourself to us because we would never have found you. We would never have seen you. We were men and women opposed to you in every possible way. We were rebels we had missed your mark and we are capable of so much evil, Lord God. We thank you that you revealed yourself to Moses. We thank you that you revealed yourself as merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and patience. Lord God, we want to thank you that you revealed yourself to us in Christ, that the full revelation of the Father came to earth, lived that perfect life, died on the cross in our place for our sin, then rose bodily from death and offered us life eternal. Lord, we thank you that you forgave us when we cried out to you. We thank you you gave us the faith to respond to all that you've done. Lord God, we want to say we worship you, we love you. And I just want to take a moment here. When you were looking through those five things, if you know you're in a position, something in your life where you need the Lord to move, you need some of that to manifest in your life, I just maybe just want to open your hands and I just want to pray specifically that the Spirit of God would come to you and that you would know him. You would know his name. You would know him more fully. You would see his mercy and his compassion towards you. You would feel his grace and his patience, his abounding steadfast love and faithfulness. Whatever that particular situation is, you know, whatever that thing you're, you're facing, just call out to him now. Tell him what it is. Be specific. If it's a work thing, a home thing, a relational thing, a finance thing, or whatever, just call him. Talk to him. And I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came 
and revealed yourself to us. Lord God, we want to say we worship you. We want to say thank you for the privilege of knowing you, of seeing you, of learning about you. God, we pray you open our hearts this day to know you more. We pray as we study these verses and we look at these things, God, that more and more of you will be revealed to us. We want to respond now in faith and say we love you, we'll serve you, we'll follow you. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.